Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to the first masterclass series on the Australian Investors Podcast. In the next 45 to 60 minutes, you'll go on a deep dive into the topic of ESG with some of Australia's foremost experts. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, and it refers to investors using their portfolios to intentionally avoid companies via negative screening techniques or target companies that are positively contributing to society or the planet. ESG has rapidly risen in popularity over the past decade, with trillions of dollars now invested in ESG-related strategies across pension funds, sovereign wealth portfolios, managed funds, and ETFs. ESG investing can apply to all types of markets in every sector and every asset class. While the ESG investment landscape is growing rapidly, many parts of it are still in their infancy. Data providers like MISCI and specialist research houses and consultants are emerging to solve problems around standard settings and comparability, the avoidance of greenwashing, and how to construct portfolios. The true efficacy of ESG investing is very contentious and still open to interpretation. Some investors believe that the best outcomes will come from investing in, quote, unethical companies and being active in setting standards for management teams and boards of directors. Other investors believe that a complete avoidance of sectors or companies can result in better outcomes for investment markets and society. Regardless of what happens next, it seems the topic of ESG isn't going away anytime soon. To help us navigate through this emerging theme, we'll be joined by Emily O'Neill of Perennial, who walks us through the subsector options, then Jake Jodlowski, a very experienced investment consultant from Atchison Consultants, explains how to perform due diligence. Finally, Drew Meredith, the director of Waddle Partners Financial Planning here in Melbourne, explains how to actually implement some of these strategies in a portfolio. First up, we have Emily O'Neill from Perennial. My name is Emily O'Neill and I'm co-head of ESG and an equities analyst at Perennial and I primarily work with Perennial Better Future which is all about finding small to mid cap ASX listed companies helping to um, pursue a more sustainable future. So Emily, the ESG, I guess if you call it a sector or industry, is a 
quite a massive thing. How can investors break it down into something like more manageable? Like are there subset categories? How do you think about it? Yeah, definitely. So the ESG universe is massive and it's growing, mm. um, you know, by day. I mean, just in global ESG funds, there's over 2,300 options and that spans across, yeah. you know, listed equities. We've got fixed income, debt, private equity, VC. So there's a whole bunch of options. Um, then investors also have a choice between passive or active ESG funds. Um, so it is it is really broad. Um, so I guess what investors should really be thinking about is do they want to manage all of their holdings in a sustainable way or is it more of a satellite approach? Um, we do think that there is, there is no performance trade-off when investing in a sustainable way. And so it does make sense to definitely have at least some allocation to sustainable investments to help capture those tailwinds. There's a number of ways that you can um, identify the best option for mm -hmm. you. And there's a number of rating um, agencies out there that look at giving qualifications or creditations to funds um, on ESG. So there's the Responsible Investment Association Australasia, also known as RIA. Um, so RIA has responsible returns, which basically um, gives a certification that a certain product is sustainable. And that's a really great way you can filter by the type of exclusion you, that you may want to see um, or the type of um, positive screen. And, and we'll jump into that in a little bit. Um, RIA also publishes their responsible um, benchmark mm. and that identifies the key sustainable leaders in the industry um, across super funds and managed funds. So it's, it's a great resource if you want to check that out. Um, we also have the Ethical Advisors Co-op, which is a cooperative of financial advisors uh, who are, have an ethical mindset and they actually rate funds on a green leaf and superannuation funds on a green leaf rating scale. So that's another tool you can mm. use to, to check out. Um, but I guess the key things you want to consider when investing in a sustainable product is that does it align with what you'd expect to see in an ESG mm. fund? The best way to do that is to go in and look at their holdings. So we think best practice is to publish a full list of holdings in the fund and do all those companies in there identify with what you'd expect to see in a sustainable product? Um, and that's really key as an investor. If you know you are keen to have an authentic ESG product, making sure it aligns with what you'd expect in mm. that fund. That's a fantastic overview of the ESG kind of sector or industry, depending how you want to frame it. What are some of the, the ways that people can use ESG investing? So what are common strategies that investors are using throughout Australia or even globally? Yeah, great. So I guess we typically think about responsible investing on a scale. So anywhere from avoiding harm um, to generating positive impact. So it, it is scale. And it's important to note that funds don't necessarily fit neatly in a category. There can be elements across all different areas of sustainable investing in a one just in one fund. Mm -hmm. um, but I will just um, go across some of the key defined uh, ways to think about sustainable investing. Sure. So the first one on the kind of avoiding harms um, sector of the scale is ESG integration. So that's all about traditional portfolio management, but you're actually using ESG as an additional factor into the risk and opportunity set. So you may look at all of the typical fundamental factors of an investment opportunity, um, but you'll also consider ESG. So whether that's ESG scores or um, you might look at um, their disclosures or engage with companies. So that's kind of what we call ESG integration. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have negative screens or exclusions. So that's all about 
not investing in companies that have revenues from harmful activities. So whether that's fossil fuels or gambling or alcohol, um, this is really kind of the traditional form of ESG investing and goes all the way back to religious groups um, many decades ago. So the next one on the scale um, is what we call positive or best-in-class screening. So this may be seeking out certain sectors or industries that we believe are having a positive ESG impact or in the best-in-class approach, what you do is you take a sector and you invest in the best-performing ESG companies within that sector. So, you know, for example, if you're looking at consumer retail, you might identify the companies that are performing best on environment, social and governance right. in that sector and that's your investment set. The next level across is what we call sustainable thematic. So that's about investing in sustainable themes. Um, so that could be decarbonisation or it could be a gender diversity lens, could be aligning with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So it's all about targeting a key theme in sustainability and investing in companies that contribute to that theme. Um, and then finally, we have impact investing. So this type of investing is all about identifying companies that have positive and measurable environmental or social impact. Um, typically, we see these types of funds in more of the private equity space, um, but we are seeing a few in, in listed equities as well. So they're really focusing on that outcome of environmental social benefit alongside financial returns. So as I mentioned, funds don't fit neatly within those categories and they can be crossover. Um, and there's also other, you know, styles like engagement or corporate advocacy, proxy voting, um, and they can be across all of those different types of ESG investment styles. So there's like a broad spectrum of responsible investing, ethical ESG investing. Mm -hmm. um, how, does, how do you think about the, I guess, the risk reward profiles or some of these strategies? Um, is it a common misconception? You would say that this costs you returns to invest through an ESG lens. Any kind of context around the risk and return uh, would be great. Yeah, definitely. So I think it is a bit of a misconception that you can't have sustainable investing alongside financial returns. We mm -hmm. believe that you can, and, and we can dive into that a little bit in more detail later. Um, I guess with ESG integration, typically that's thinking about weighting sustainability into the investment process. You don't have to take much benchmarking risk, um, but you may reweight companies more or less depending mm. on their ESG scores, for example, or your engagement outcomes. So that's probably um, a way to not take benchmarking risk when you're thinking about sustainability investing. Um, impact investing is a little bit more on the risky scale because um, you know, you're only looking at companies with a positive environmental or social outcome. So these can be in areas like social housing or not-for-profits um, or microfinance, for example. Um, so I guess negative screening is probably where we see what people refer to as benchmarking risk. Yeah. Um, so because you're actually excluding certain industries or sectors from the investable universe. So that means that you might be quite look quite different to what the benchmark is, like the ASX 200. So traditional equities typically fall into this space. Um, and so, you know, you, you without the... Um, Negative screens, it could be a similar risk return profile, but because you are excluding those sectors, you do get a little bit more benchmarking risk there. Okay. Uh, what typically happens in ESG funds is that they could be underweight resources and mining and overweight IT and healthcare. That's a global, I guess, um, 
uh, assumption about ESG funds. So that means that when those sectors are outperforming or underperforming, you can get some skews in the portfolio. Um, And we have seen that a little bit recently with where resources kind of rallied and typically ESG funds are more underweight, those type of companies. So you do get some of that risk. Um, In saying that, what we do think in looking at a company from an ESG perspective is just another lens into the investment process. So you're actually considering risk and opportunity on another level with a business. So in a way that actually minimizes your investment mm. risk um, because you're, you could, you're more likely to avoid things like reputational risk, legal risk, policy change, fines, um, regulations. So it actually is a tool to help you reduce your risk profile. And typically, ESG funds are less volatile than their mainstream peers. So it's actually right. quite an interesting tool to help your risk profile as well. So actually, it does, I guess the proof is in the pudding there where you do have that sustainability lens. We're, we're you know, presumably looking at more sustainable companies, therefore, tends to have lower volatility in certain respects. How about, Emily, when you look across Australia or throughout the world, who would you say are some of the more I guess, successful investors in the ESG, uh, within the ESG landscape, um, you know, be they you know, active investors or, or not, private investors, who do you look to for, I guess, information as a credible source? Yeah, great. Um, so again, this is not financial advice and obviously do your own research and, and talk to a financial advisor. Um, but there are groups that we think are doing a really good job on sustainability. And mm-hmm. one of those I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Ethical Advisors Co-op. Yep. So they're a group of financial advisors who can help you understand the sustainable landscape. And I think that they do a really good um, job and they actually rate both investment funds and superannuation products on sustainability. So a great tool to identify Mm. some of those funds or super funds um, that might be doing a good job. Um, There's, you know, also some super funds that are really focused on sustainability. So we have Future Super, which is all about not investing in fossil fuels. And we have Burb Super, which is all about gender equality. Um, So I guess some super funds that are targeting specific sustainability outcomes. Mm. Um, But there's also some industry funds that are doing quite a good job as well. So Australian Super and Aware Super, they have large investment teams. They're doing a lot um, on sustainability and engagement and driving collaborative investor groups. So um, things like Climate Action 100 Plus, which is all about targeting the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters. Um, so they're quite active in that group. And also Investors Against Slavery and Human Trafficking, IST, APAC, is another collaborative engagement group led by these um, funds to help drive and identify modern slavery risks in um, Asia-Pacific supply chains, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those areas where we're looking for leaders in this sector to kind of show us what is what is best in class and what is not how do you go about thinking about your own ethical or sustainable screening process and building a portfolio of companies for perennial yeah um so i guess perennial we think has a really unique way of of doing it but in general there's no one size fits all as i mentioned there's a Mm. whole landscape of sustainable investment styles that you can um, choose and and it's best to understand those so you know what you're actually investing in. Um, But I guess what we typically start with is a negative screen. So you're identifying the sectors and the revenue generation activities that you don't want to invest in. So you want to avoid exposure to those Mm. sectors because you believe that they're going to experience reputational risk, increasing regulation, um, they're going to be subject to that changing consumer shift as well. So we want to avoid those, those types of things. So that's our first step in the process. 
Um, and then ESG investing, as I mentioned, is very similar to traditional investing. So we're also looking at those traditional investment frameworks. So f- focus on the fundamentals. We're looking at profit and loss statements, balance sheet, cash flow generation, management expertise, competitor landscape, the economy and and where it fits in. So we're thinking about all of that kind of stuff, but we're also adding an additional lens on the sustainability. So what is the business purpose and is it having a positive or negative impact on environment and society? Um, And what is it doing from a corporate perspective? So we really want to understand is the business and the management teams focused on sustainability across their organization? So are they treating their staff well? Um, you know, do they have a diverse employee and management base, whether that be gender diversity, background or, or culture? Um, you know, are they governed in the appropriate way? Are they incentivized in a way to help maximize long-term shareholder returns? Um, are they being good corporate citizens? So these are all things that we think about in addition to the fundamentals. Um, some funds do use a scoring system um, on ES and G, and, and that's the same as perennial. So we have an internal scoring mechanism where we rate companies across environment, social governance, and what we call engagement. Right. Um, so that's a little bit of a unique feature about perennial, and that is about whether companies are addressing and improving on their ESG and sustainable risks and opportunities. So that's a really important factor for us. Um, but a lot of other funds use external rating providers that might look across many dynamics and data on, on sustainability and, and they do that. Um, but for us, we do it in-house, particularly given our small cap focus. There's also a number of ESG data points that you can then look at. So um, whether it's in the sustainability report, the annual report, the company's um, presentations, a really great source of information is a company's website. Mm. Um, and that's really easy to access for investors. They can just go on and see you know, what the company celebrates as their sustainable practices. Um, and we also use data points. So um, we use a number of sources to help us identify um, you know, climate risk or their sustainable development goal contribution. I guess the focus for us, which is, again, a little bit different, is we're actually targeting companies that we think are going to benefit from sustainable tailwinds. So typically these are in sectors like healthcare, renewable energy, low-carbon technology, water resource, efficiency management, Mm. um, improving social welfare, whether that's employee engagement or um, workplace safety. So they're kind of the target areas for us and and the things that we focus on, um, all about companies that are helping to shape a better environment and society. I think also ESG, what's a little bit different is ESG investing does take a really Um, detailed view on proxy voting as well. So when a company has an annual general meeting, which happens once a year annual, um, they have to put to market where shareholders can vote on certain business activities. And and what we see from ESG funds and ESG investors is a more active role in that voting process. So they may make a protest vote where they're not happy with how some of the sustainability risks are being managed in the business. So, you know, they might may decide to vote against directors where the gender diversity on the board is not adequate. Um, they may actually put advocacy proposals forward to the board as well on climate change, for example, or social risk. I mean, we saw it with Rio and the blasting mm. of Duke and Gorge. Um, so we do see that ESG funds tend to take a bit more of an active role in, in the proxy voting process. Um, and, you know, areas like modern slavery where there's risks and you can see some protest votes um, investors may vote against the remuneration report because they don't believe that the management team has adequately managed those ESG risks. In uh, your portfolios, what's a a typical number of holdings? Yeah, so for us, we hold between 40 and 60 
stocks in the portfolio and they're all across the small to mid-cap um, space because that's where we believe the innovation for sustainability is is a key there. Um, but it also we have a really large investment team at Perennial, so that helps us go out and identify great opportunities. And it's also an area we think we can have the biggest impact from an engagement perspective. So mm. these smaller companies don't have big sustainability teams. They don't have shiny ESG reports. And that allows us to go in and help them identify what's material to their business and help to drive ESG improvements. So that's the area that we focus on. Fantastic. So you, you mentioned that um, ESG can take many forms and also it can apply to many different asset classes. Uh, how do you think about the, the long-term historical performance of ESG funds? Yeah, absolutely. So there's no financial trade-off to invest in a sustainable way um, and the research definitely helps to um, confirm this view. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes sense when you're thinking about when you're considering ESG for a business, you're helping to mitigate some of the risks associated with poor performing environmental and social performance. So sure. I mentioned, you know, you're less likely to get environmental fines, for instance, you're less likely to be subject to changing regulation. For example, we saw the um, Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act come in where companies with over 100 mil of revenue had to report on modern slavery risks. And that really shone a, shone a light on companies that weren't managing their modern slavery risk well. That's an ESG risk. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be on the forefront of that and avoid companies that are not doing the right thing because they're going to be subject to more risk going forward. So it does uh, makes sense that ESG funds should at least perform in line with the traditional peers, and, and that is what we've seen. So um, if you look at the MISCI SRI ind yep. indices across, um, you know, all world, USA, Japan, Asia, um, they've all outperformed the traditional MISCI benchmark, um, and that relationship has particularly strengthened since 2019 um, when we had the COVID pandemic and that you know, focused on health and, and well-being. Um, we had the Black Lives Matter movement as well and obviously the big shift in focus on environmental decarbonisation and alignment with the Paris Agreement. So um, the relationship really strengthened there. And a report for Bank of America found that 66% um, of the ESG indices that they looked at outperformed their traditional ind indices. So, you know, there is a positive relationship there. Yeah. Um, even if we look at the RIA benchmark report, which uh, measures ESG performance versus traditional peers over the last 10 years, we found that across most asset classes and timeframes, ESG funds performed in line, if not better than their mm. mainstream peers. So we can definitely see the relationships there. Um, that's not to say that there will be certain times where funds will underperform or outperform. Um, but over the long term, it does seem that ESG is helping to support that uh, framework, returns framework. And, you know, as I mentioned, what we also tend to see is high risk adjusted returns as mm. well. So because you're you're mitigating some of that risk and we have lower volatility in sustainable funds. Mm. So where can people go to find out more about your investment process uh, and your filtering techniques? Yeah, great. So you can have a look on the Perennial website and, and go to the Perennial Better Future page. We also recently started a Perennial Better Future LinkedIn page where we post some key information there. Um, so please check it out and, and reach out to the Perennial team if you'd like to discuss ESG or sustainability or the fund in more detail. We love to talk about it. So please get in touch. Fantastic. Emily O'Neill, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Next up, we've got Jake Jodlowski from Atchison who walks us through the all-important due diligence considerations. That is, the steps to take before you invest. 
Jake, welcome to this masterclass. Thank you. For those uh, viewers and listeners who haven't heard of you or the Atchison name, can you give us a brief intro to yourself and, and to the brand? Okay. Well, my name is Jake Jalowski. I'm from Atchison Consultants, or what we call ourselves Atchison now, Dr. Consultants. <laughs> um, I am, you can tell from my accent, I'm originally from London. I uh, worked in chartered accounting in London, specialised in tax, then moved into investments. And about 27 years ago, uh, moved from London to Hobart, Tasmania, and started with a financial services company in Tasmania, uh, which we grew, uh, superannuation, financial planning, investment management. I was on the investment management side. Uh, we grew successfully, listed the company on the stock exchange in the mid-90s, and through subsequent acquisitions, uh, uh, became a $3 billion financial services company. I've been with Atchison's now for 10 years, and it is a, an independent consulting company. We consult to public office superannuation funds, property trusts, and wealth management groups, and also charities and uh, non-for-profit organizations. Um, my role there is I'm a principal there. I focus on building portfolios, client portfolios, investment portfolios, and also do a number of reviews on investment managers and suitable strategies for our clients. So you're the perfect person to talk about uh, some of these uh, questions today. We're talking about ESG in particular, which I know is not necessarily uh, your focus at uh, Atchison, but it's something that you do come across quite regularly. I'm hoping for the first question you can answer, um, what are the potential sources of returns as they relate to ESG? And you could take this across equities, fixed income, however you want to take that. There's no real difference between uh, Australian equities, returns from Australian equities or bonds um, or listed property trusts, etc. They just have an ESG screen over the top where they exclude certain types of investments for ESG reasons, whether it's environmental, social or governance or all three. But fundamentally, there is no real difference. We are still looking for active returns for our clients. Mm -hmm. How about on the passive side? Do you come across uh, many passive funds that have the screening criteria as well? We do. Um, speaking from experience, we were asked by a client to build an ESG portfolio. Um, and we asked them, can you please provide us with your definition of ESG? Um, they weren't able to. They just wanted basically an ESG product. Mm -hmm. um, so we designed an ESG product using 100% passive funds throughout, throughout the whole diversified portfolio. Hmm. Okay, so that's great to know that they can be built active or passive. Um, I don't see as many passive in my experience, but um, I guess that's maybe something that we see coming down the pipe. Maybe there's no, more. there are more passive yep. um, coming through. There was a lack in the fixed interest space, mm -hmm. but there are now more passive funds in the fixed interest. So I think BlackRock launched, Vanguard have launched products, passive products. Mm. And, that, and when we put together the diversified portfolio, uh, the passive one, it, it was very cost effective for the client. If we think about, so normally when we do these masterclasses, we talk about key determinants of success. We might be talking about active strategies, or we might be talking about um, passive funds that do a better job than active in some respects. But as it relates to ESG, and you studying maybe the investment process or philosophy of some of the managers or, or clients that you deal with, how do you think about what goes into making, I guess, a better than average uh, investment process as a if they want to invest in a way that's responsible, sustainable, ethical, etc. I think the client has to understand from the onset that there will be a deviation in investment performance. Mm -hmm. And that could be on the upside or on the downside. So fundamentally, the start has to be what's the client's ESG philosophy? 
Mm. And from that, we can go out and select suitable strategies that meet that philosophy, mm-hmm. whether they're passive or active or a combination. At the moment, it's, it's quite difficult in the marketplace to find the same type of ESG strategy across all asset classes. Uh, we've had a, one issue with a, with, a, with a client, not an issue, but a, an institutional client where the word greenwashing has come up, mm. where the ESG strategy is not being replicated or philosophy is not being replicated in every asset class. Mm. So a client has to understand that their portfolio may not be 100% ESG. It may be 40% ESG or 10% ESG. Mm-hmm. So when we work with clients, we put together an ESG budget. So the client is aware that only 60% or 50% of the portfolio will be ESG at the moment to a specific philosophy and certain asset classes may not be ESG because there may not be the strategies available. Sometimes when I look at uh, ethical ESG aware funds, sometimes the actual portfolio doesn't deviate that much from you know, a traditional um, fund and that's maybe because the products simply aren't available? Or it's not clear. Hmm. It's not clear. The philosophy isn't clear. It's, it's blurred. Yeah, right. So from the onset, you, when if, you, if you are selecting a strategy, you really need to look under the hood. Yep. Understand what the fund manager is trying to achieve through, the, through ESG. Most fund managers will focus and have focused historically on the governance part because that does have an impact on performance. Poor corporate governance, as we witnessed with, say, Crown Casinos, or hmm. you can see where poor governance has really eroded uh, shareholder value. How about then, Jake, recently um, there have been reports that um, responsible funds, in particular active funds, have performed very strongly over a five-year window, say. Um, There are various reports on this, say, like the RIAA. But more recently, if we just zoom in on 2022 as we record this, um, we've had the energy sector and the resources sector take flight, while traditional sectors, which may be considered ethical, air quotes, being, uh, say, technology or software, uh, they've taken a bath. In which market environments would you say having that ESG lens, I guess, um, produces our performance or at least market-like returns? And in which environments maybe is it more difficult to achieve those returns? Well, you're right. You're saying if we look at 2022, materials and energy were the, the best performing asset classes or sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a fund manager, Australian equity manager, and you weren't holding any materials or energy stocks, you underperformed full stop, yep. irrespective of the, of the stocks you were holding. Um, so if you, and then obviously on the flip side of that, most ESG, a lot of ESG strategies do hold, as you said, technology stocks. So in an inflationary environment, what we've seen over, 20, over 20, 2022 is that with the inflationary environment, the technology stocks have come off mm. and the growth stocks have come off because they all tend to be technology stocks and the value stocks have come up mm. and the materials and energy stocks have, have come up. So it's basically inflation and interest rates have, have, have generated the, the underperformance or outperformance mm. of certain stocks. As a consultant, and researcher, what are the more common questions that you might get asked by investment committees or financial advisors? The first question would be, build me an ESG portfolio, Jake. We have got 
demand from tends to be younger clients mm -hmm. who are happy to have their superannuation contributions directed towards ESG and also wealthier older clients who have sufficient capital that generates them sufficient income in their retirement but would like to do something a little bit better with their capital. Mm -hmm. um, so they're the type of the cohorts of type of clients we deal with. Again, we go back to the same thing. What's the philosophy? What's our ESG budget? Mm. Because you have to disclose. It will be good to disclose to your clients or their clients how much of that portfolio is actually genuine ESG and what are the what is the definition of ESG. Mm. How about the question of um, what's the performance profile like? Do I sacrifice returns when I invest in an ethical ESG-focused strategy? In our presentation to a client we, we, we did about a year ago, on the first page, there was a bullet point saying there will be deviation of investment performance from the benchmarks. And that may be on the upside or downside. So they should expect deviation. Over time, you would expect the portfolios to, to behave or mimic a non-ESG portfolio, mm. fundamentally. And if we're talking about a diversified fund, rather than just Australian equities or bonds, 80 to 90% of the returns will come from the strategic asset allocation. So if, if the ESG portfolio and the non-ESG portfolios have similar asset allocations, over time, the performance will be very similar. Mm. So variability sounds like one risk that investors should be aware of. Are there any other res risks um, as it relates to ESG that investors should be uh, aware of? It's really, the, the risk is with the portfolio manager and how much resources they're allocating to the ESG research. Mm. Because that's fundamentally an, an, what we call an overlay over the portfolio. Mm. So some fund managers may not be resourced sufficiently resourced to, to do sufficient research on, on the ESG part of, a, of the portfolio or of a stock or of a bond. Mm. And they may rely on third-party um, off-the-shelf type ESG research that really is, is commoditized and, and not particularly specific to that fund manager. So there's, there's a risk there. But we're seeing more and more, within, within our industry, we're seeing fund managers recruiting more and more people with ESG experience, but mm. still it's, it's in its infancy. We talked off air a moment ago about benchmarking. So maybe you can talk about benchmark, ben, benchmarking risk, because I think it's kind of uh, peculiar as we look at uh, ESG funds and strategies. Yeah, our, our preference is for fund managers, if they're running an ESG strategy, is to have a customized benchmark. Rather than benchmarking themselves against the broader one, which doesn't really make any sense. Um, so if you're not holding materials and energy, why are you benchmarking yourself against mm. an index or a benchmark that has materials and energy in it? You will always, then therefore you will either underperform or underperform. Yeah. Um, so our preference is for fund managers to, once they, once they have the ESG strategy, go to an index provider, and this is basically my investable universe, which makes up my benchmark. And from that, I select either the stocks or bonds from that universe. All right, Jake, this is a final question, which is, if I was a financial advisor I'm coming to you and I'm saying, my client is wanting to invest 10% of their portfolio into an ESG strategy, how would you expect that 
to change the risk reward profile of a diversified portfolio. Realistically, without running um, some numbers, I don't think it will change the risk return profile. It will be minute difference. But what we would do, we would test that. So we have our, our own sort of what we call a mean variance optimizer or, or a black box mm-hmm. uh, where we would input certain data, the total portfolio, uh, run that through the black box and out of that will come out certain characteristics of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that will be maybe the probability of achieving investment objectives, the change on, on uh, the, the risk or the, the variance of the risk. And, and the probability of achieving certain percentages, et cetera. Mm. So we would, we would, we would, we would test that. So Jake, thanks for joining me for this masterclass. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Finally, my friend and portfolio construction expert, Drew Meredith, joins us to explain how to use ESG strategies in a portfolio. You'll know Drew if you regularly listen to this podcast, the Australian Investors Podcast Series. We start with Drew answering the key question of how does adding an ESG strategy affect portfolio construction? Here's Drew's answer. Drew Meredith, welcome to this masterclass on ESG. Thanks, Owen. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do for a day job? How do you help your clients, so on and so forth? I'm an advisor and founder of Wattle Partners, uh, which is a fee-for-service financial advice business that uh, specialise in uh, working with retirees and building investment portfolios for that mm-hmm. decumulation, decumulation phase. Been in the industry for about 19 years. So you're based here in Melbourne, but you have clients around Australia? Yeah, every capital city and yeah, based in Melbourne above the uh, lovely Chin Chin yeah, restaurant. Great. So we've talked uh, in another masterclass about global small caps and now we're talking about ESG. And this one is an interesting one. It's quite tricky to kind of straddle. Uh, as an advisor because you're dealing with both sides of the ledger uh, ledger sorry and by that I mean you have the defensive side of a portfolio and you have the growth side of a portfolio um, which both blend differently with an ESG lens so depending on how you want to take this first question is how do you see ESG overall affecting the risk profile and how do you view the risk profile of this sector I see ESG as being across an entire portfolio, you sh- it should be part of your, your firm philosophy or your investment philosophy, whether you're an investor or whether you're an advisor. Mm-hmm. It, it can pervade every part of your portfolio and the kind of things you're looking at in ESG are, are potential risks against returns, whether that's climate and environment on one side, governance and or poor governance within companies, and then the social implications of the companies you're lending money to or the companies you're buying equity in. So when we think about um, the different types of investors or clients that you come across who are thinking, well, ESG is something that I care about, how do you think about who this would be suitable for? Does this tend to be like a a demand-driven thing? So clients coming to you or do you suggest these types of strategies? I think it has to come from the advisor and uh, for advisors, it has to be a clear policy that they've really thought about and are able to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a risk, there's a tendency essentially to just go, you know, here's an ESG fund or here's an ESG index or here's a green a strategy that greens your portfolio. But I don't think, or I don't think I know most clients I speak to aren't comfortable with that, just having a side investment in ESG. Mm-hmm. It's very much about building an entire approach or view within your business, communicating that and making sure you're dealing with people who align with that or at least understand 
what you're putting into uh, portfolios. I think the key there is that it's very personal, that it's different for every person. So the best you can do is put forward a real case and, and purpose mm. and then work around that. Otherwise, you you could end up having 150 different portfolios for 150 different clients. Mm. So communication and, and having a firm policy, I think, is important. How do you see ESG strategies actually being used in portfolios? So um, whether it's you know on the defensive side or the you know maybe risk on side, yeah. How do you see those being used by clients typically? I see most people that come in. It's it's a compliment similar to what we talked about in global small caps. Well, they'll have one or two strategies that are that are green and they back. You know, they're invested into things like solar or things that you know anti tobacco or anti gambling or you know negative screening. Um, the majority are doing it that way, but there is a small minority and a growing minority of groups that are just saying we can't partially green we would just want full ESG integrated portfolios to this level Mm -hmm. and then actually putting every investment they consider through that same lens so the entire portfolio makes sense Mm -hmm. uh, when they present it to clients rather than adding one or two. We had Jake from Atchison as part of this masterclass come on and he mentioned that in some areas maybe um, there isn't the depth of kind of the, I guess, the strategy that some people would like. Yeah. And so there may be, in some instances, maybe there is compromise across parts of the portfolio. Um, in terms of, you know, the risk on or risk off, um, how, how do you see that allocation playing out? Do you often see that there's a replacement for certain strategies on either of those sides or is there enough to build portfolios from? Yeah, I partially agree. We looked at this about three years ago and you definitely struggled to build uh, an appropriate ESG uh, full portfolio. It mm-hmm. has improved over the last few years, but what's actually also improved is the level of data and the level of uh, integration that managers, ETFs, and everyone are providing on their mm-hmm. ESG policies now. So you can actually find things that align that may not even be considered ESG or green strategies mm-hmm. when you look closer at them. So I think it's much easier than it was. Uh, the big challenge remains, in our view, it's easy to get data on on equities. It's easy to get you know an annual report and go through and find out climate disclosures and how they're rating on social and governance issues. It's much more difficult to do that on the fixed income side. Mm. There's some growth in things like green bonds and sustainable bonds, but very much index still dominated by government government debt. And how do you apply an ESG lens to to asset? like that mm. so definitely a struggle on the, on the defensive side yeah i know some etfs in australia where there's the a, gr- a green etf in fixed income and there's the, the regular fixed income etf and there's only there's only one bond difference between the two etfs and yeah. there was a bit of a fee load difference so that type of thing can happen so it's, i think it's important for uh everyone to be aware of yeah. but how about then so we've kind of touched on maybe some ways that people can go wrong here or investors can go wrong what would you say are a few of the common ways that investors do tend to go wrong when they're allocating to um, it through to an ESG strategy, whether it's in fixed income or equities? I think the first one is assuming or believing the label. Every single fund strategy ETF now has an, ETF, an ESG policy. Mm. Assuming that because they have an ESG policy that their views align with what you're trying to do um, is, is one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, so that just means you have to you have to undertake more work. You know, look at uh, where they've invested in the past. Have they just put forward a policy that explains you know mm. what they plan to do yeah. or as a marketing tool? So I think uh, trusting too too much in them. 
Uh, I think the other mistake is whether it's due to the age cohort of investors, but assuming that ESG or ethical or responsible investing means you're going to get generate lower returns. Um, it's history has shown the last decade that uh, it doesn't matter whether it's ESG or not. It can mm. it, it does it, it does not have to be a detractor on returns. Um, and also the probably the last one is that ESG strategies have to be high growth, high risk, and focused on technology, healthcare, and those sort of sectors. Mm. So naturally, there's this growth focus because those companies fundamentally rate better on ESG factors, mainly because they don't have any physical assets mm. or anything like that. <laughs> but more and more, you know, there's as many ESG companies, whether ESG positive companies, whether it's you know renewable energy providers, material companies that are supplying clean energy revolution. It's actually across the entire entire market and sector now. So Assuming it can only be growth stocks within an ESG portfolio is probably one of the last mistakes. I think it's uh, debatable that, say, banks are arguably, you know, that one of the most powerful influences over the kind of the ESG ecosystem in terms of who they lend money to, how they lend it, and what they're pulling back on. I think at any one point in time, they kind of act like the fulcrum in the financial markets uh, for this. Um, my, my next question is, and this is something that is probably quite um, topical at the moment and it can be quite polarizing, is if you are an ESG investor, can you go purely passive with that? Or I guess what are the shortcomings of that versus active approach? I think it's one where you can do both, I think, but uh, some of the issues with that were exposed when Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year. So mm. passive is great because it can be data-driven and there's no qualitative view or you don't have to have a, a personal view on it. Um, but the issue with with data and, and passive-driven is that the only real great data is on environment and carbon intensity. Mm. So that's very much where your portfolio gets focused on. Um, the, the rating and availability of that is improving. Uh, I think when you start to move outside and you're starting to look at sectors that are growing or trying to find companies that are improving, then it very much has to be active because considering the social license or the social implications of the company that's could be social media, it could be you know sugar, whatever it happens to be, and then the governance within a company that's very much qualitative. You, you know your fund manager or your portfolio manager needs to be meeting with management, meeting with competitors, and understanding what the company is actually doing. Are they doing what this they say in their you know, ESG or diversity policy, or are they actually just written a policy and <laughs> investing accordingly. So I think it's one where you can use both as long as you know what you're getting in ESG um, and probably in active and passive. So knowing what your active manager stands for and will and won't do and also knowing what your passive manager is, man is, is uh, managing against. Um, this is actually, this is a good segue into the next question, which is that if you have a fund manager, um, say well, we could take maybe just an active fund manager because most passive strategies are pretty well disclosed in the documentation. Yeah. But um, when you meet with an active manager who focuses on ethical investing or ESG, what are some of the questions that you would want to ask them? So the big one is what will you and won't you invest into? So is it a negative, positive screen? And and what's the uh, restriction on that? So is there a materiality? If, if your company is getting more than 10% in gambling, Mm. Will you invest in that company or is it a blanket no? So positive and negative exclusions. Um, and broader than that, what do you stand for? You really want a manager that is able to succinctly say in, say, two to three pages, maybe that's too long, <laughs> what they're seeking to invest in, what they're seeking to 
exclude and why, and then how they'll deal with these nuanced, challenging, challenging things like retail companies and how their supply, where their supply chain comes from. That's um, probably one of the biggest ones. And what have they actually done in the past? So it's very good to show us an ESG policy and what you will and won't do for the next. 10 years, mm. but show me the portfolio and how you've managed it over the last 10. Were you going into high polluting fossil fuels uh, in 2022 because there was an energy crisis? So mm. checking their policy against what they actually did in the past, which uh, if you spoke to Jake from Atchison, is kind of a key part of what they do. So ESG um, as a whole, whether it's whatever asset class we're thinking about, um, in which environments would you expect these strategies to perform better or worse than, say, the market averages? And just, I guess, how do you think about preparing clients for the investment experience of having that ethical lens? I think in the context of where most ESG strategies lie at the moment on the equity side, it's very much growth-focused, so looking mm. uh, very large exposures to technology, healthcare, consumer, industrial, so generally more expensive or fast-growing companies, and that's not necessarily suited to a 2022 where bond yields were increasing, inflation was a concern, and uh, volatility increased. So generally, faster-growing companies that are growing earnings are better suited to lower economic growth environments. Essentially, their share price should increase. If they're growing faster than the uh, broader global economy, then their share price should increase more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, that, that's a kind of a generalisation of what ESG strategies do. They don't all invest in healthcare. They mm-hmm. don't all invest in the next, you know, set of global thematic winners. So I think they can uh, they can perform in most environments. But again, it depends very much on what they're investing into. Is it a company that's willing to invest a, a strategy that's willing to invest into different parts of the sector? So materials that are involved in producing batteries and mm. how where you stand on that stuff here. Another, probably another masterclass. Uh, so I think that's multiple outcomes, but depending on what the underlying approach is. So plenty of strategies blend the higher growth opportunities with the more traditional. An example would be a company that's refurbing office buildings by you know adding insulation that's improving the you know, the environmental impact of those assets, but are very much an old-fashioned company. Mm. So I think both. Yeah, well said. Uh, Drew Meredith, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this masterclass. If you enjoyed hearing these experts' insights, I want to hear from you. Putting together the masterclasses requires days of effort, flying to cities and recording, and doing lots of post-production. However, if you find these sessions valuable to your investing, I really want to hear from you. We've got two more masterclasses already locked and loaded. They'll cover global small caps and commodities with Australia's experts. If you're a fund manager, consultant, researcher, or financial planner, and you want to get involved in these series, please get in touch with me. Thanks for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. 
Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.